This is Digital Health Today, episode 32. That idea of making things clinically led, I consider anyway one of our biggest successes, where others haven't been able to get that clinical engagement. We've been able to really do that and have some immediate success with having clinicians engaged and leading projects. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by audible.com. Audible is offering a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. With over 180,000 titles to choose from, you're sure to find something you'd like. Enjoy your free audiobook and 30-day free trial courtesy of Audible. Sign up today at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Welcome back. This is Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 32. It's the 4th of July. People all over the U.S. are enjoying their barbecues and fireworks, and I'm not going to lie, this is one of the holidays I really miss celebrating. For some reason, the Brits just don't quite get into the holiday, and it's not a big deal in their books. If you want fireworks, you have to wait until November for Guy Fawkes Day, which frankly, I never really understood. Why did they name a holiday after a person who tried to blow up Parliament? He was part of the gunpowder plot, he was sentenced to execution, and then a national holiday was named after him? I don't get it. If you can explain it, I'd love to hear it. Email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com. Help me with my British knowledge. Happy Independence Day to everyone in the U.S. All right, our guest today is Richard Corbridge. He is both the Chief Information Officer for the Health Service Executive in Ireland, and he's the CEO of eHealth Ireland. Richard has a wealth of experience in the health and clinical research sector, leading business change, benefits management, and information security projects. Over the last 15 years, Richard has delivered a wide range of technology and health systems, and he's had some great success. And he's also had success with perhaps the most complex systems in healthcare, the people. Richard and I spoke about what could be learned from the UK's National Programme for IT, a program that is largely criticized as a 12 billion pound failure but that did provide some key infrastructure and systems to modernize the UK's health system. We also spoke about clinical engagement and the role of clinicians, all clinicians, not just doctors, all clinicians in leading and embracing change. We also spoke about the Lighthouse projects that are underway in Ireland to provide technology solutions for bipolar disease, epilepsy, and hemophilia. They'd have a cool solution using chatbots for mental health that I think you'll want to hear about. As always, you can get all the show notes on the website. Just visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 32. And while you're there, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and join our community. Now let's tune into the conversation with Richard Corbridge. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Cool. Thank you very much. So Richard, I've given the listeners a little bit of insight into your background. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal journey that's taking you to where you are today? Yeah, I've been in health technology for 20 years, started looking after um, the health systems for administrative purposes in the NHS 20 years ago, looking after the ability for the NHS to do call and recall for cancer screening, how it paid GPs. We put in the first secure connection for GP practices to be able to send their items of service, patient registration, cancer screening into those systems, and then moved into program and project management, launching the data transfer service, which was the first edifact or you know structured data function for sending information around the NHS, then various other program roles, moved over to clinical research as the CIO for clinical research in the UK, and then most recently moved to Ireland two and a half years ago to take up the post of CIO for the health system in Ireland, which is known as the health service executive. What did you study? 
Um, business studies and teaching, oddly. <laughs> so not technology initially. So I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then, fortunately or unfortunately, dependent on whether you're my mum or whether you work in healthcare, I decided not to be a teacher. Um, literally when I left university, I was persuaded by money, unfortunately, that perhaps being a teacher was going to be a long, difficult path. And going and working for Perot Systems, actually, initially was a much more um, quicker way for a 21-year-old to afford a lifestyle that he wanted to. Um, that's really interesting. Perot Systems. I mean, that's not a name you hear much about. What was it like working for them? And what, at what stage in the business development was it? So it was very early days in the mid-90s. It was my first role out of university. It was an exciting time to be looking at. We were doing geographic information systems using satellite imaging to place cables underground so that electricians didn't dig cables up when they were doing different work around there. And, yeah, it was a fascinating place to cut teeth, particularly having done business studies and teaching and then going into a quality and business change role. So it was it was different, but... After two years in Perot, I was asked would I move to the States, and I decided that I didn't want to move to the States at that time. Um, so we parted ways and I joined healthcare. I imagine two years for an organization like that, it's sort of like getting an MBA. You learn a lot <laughs> on the ground, and I imagine it's pretty fast-paced and high-pressure environment. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, particularly, you know, straight out of university, you're enthused to learn still and do as much as you possibly can. So it was a, a quick learning curve, but I guess... For me, moving then into healthcare, the first time that that kind of really replicated itself was the National Programme for IT a few years later, moving from Birmingham in the UK up to Leeds and becoming one of the, the sort of early members of uh, the team that put the National Programme together, learning an awful lot from both success and mistakes that the National Programme made. That was more akin to the MBA, really, for, from a healthcare technology point of view, because the speed that that programme set up and moved at was something that healthcare hadn't seen before in the UK and, and maybe we'll never see again, actually. So let's talk about that. I, I didn't realize that you'd been involved with that project. When I moved to the UK in 2003, I was involved in health technology, networking hospitals, getting information into and out of operating theaters or operating rooms, as we call them in the States. And the National Program for IT, I think, was just being launched around that time. Tony Blair's government had, had announced this. It was a huge capital expense and there was going to be a lot of work, and I attended many meetings about it. What was your role? And and you just talked about some of the, the mistakes and lessons learned from that. Can you give me some insights about some of the things that worked well and maybe the motives that were on track, but maybe some of the execution that, that could have been done differently? I was one of very few people in those days that came to the National Program with healthcare background. The National Program had recruited a lot of experts in their field, so cyber experts, service management experts, technologists, but not healthcare experts. I think that was one of the lessons that I've brought to Ireland is that we need to engage clinicians, we need to engage the health system to truly, really, really deliver a difference. So my role initially in the program was to look at the existing supplier base for the NHS that wasn't contracted by the national program to make sure that they were supported in delivering some of the goals of the national program, like electronic prescribing, choose and book, connectivity to the spine, etc. But it was quite, well, it was a very interesting role because it meant we didn't have the contractual levers that were in place that the national program was sort of known for, but we did have relationships that we built with the national program vendors and suppliers and how that had worked and came together. So that was the big difference there. I think the, the program is often known for having, maybe not always known for having been successful. 
And yet you look around today and every GP practice in the NHS is connected to high power bandwidth. The whole of the NHS has choose and book, it has electronic prescribing, it has patient administration systems, packs everywhere. So whilst it would be seen by media as perhaps not being successful, it would also, if we reflect on it, change the landscape of the NHS from a technology point of view. Hey, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it may not have delivered on all the aims that were discussed at the very beginning, but it certainly did bring it forward in a large way, in a, in a significant way, from where it was in the early 2000s. So it's important to sort of recognize those successes. I think one of the things that we've we've tried to do in Ireland, the national program set out a grand plan that it would finish in five years or 10 years or whatever the timelines were. And it was going to go away and do lots of stuff. And then as if the magic moment was going to happen, the curtain would roll back and we would have a digital healthcare system. Actually, what we've tried to do in Ireland is say, we need an end in mind, but we need some stages on the way that will change the way healthcare is delivered. And that's both clinical engagement and patient engagement. You know, we try desperately to keep that theme and that message that everything we're doing is about changing the way we deliver healthcare to keep the patient at the center. And everything we do needs to be clinically led and isn't really an IT project, it's a business change project. And we've tried really hard to, to push that into everything that we do in Ireland over the last two and a half years, which has been, it's been a really exciting time to be in a country where clinicians are so engaged in the art of what digital could do to healthcare. I think that's for me in Ireland has been the most exciting part of this. In the NHS, we would have really struggled to get clinical engagement. Whereas in Ireland, the clinical engagement is here in spades. And it's, it's really fantastic from that point of view for a country to be so behind what it wants to do with clinicians for a digital fabric, as we've been calling it. In terms of the ambition of the program, one of the things that I thought was a little bit remarkable about it when I started to sit through some of those meetings back in 2003 and four was that they were trying to project and define, as you said, they're sort of going to roll back the curtain in five years' time. Who can possibly anticipate all the evolutions that we're going to see in terms of technology in Absolutely. five years' time? In 2003 to 2008, well, I mean, just think about the iPhone and the, the iPad that came out a few years later and the mobile working and the expectation. And what I've seen is that the, the programs have really changed where they used to be very much enterprise-led and sort of pushed down from the top, as you said, they were going to roll back the curtain and suddenly there's going to be a digital environment for everyone to work in in the clinical space. Whereas now people are coming in, well, now for the past 10 years almost, people have been coming in with their smart devices and saying, wait a minute, I can get a mortgage, I can rent a car, I can book my holiday through my phone. Why can't I do this as a patient or for my family or for my patients? So it's, it's really changed from being top down to being a grassroots sort of approach to it. Yeah, definitely. I think that consumerization of digital has had a bigger impact on health uh, for a, a very specific reason. And that's healthcare generally in all jurisdictions is so digitally immature compared to other business verticals that patients and clinicians are now starting to lead the way, not IT, in what digital does. And I, some CIOs would see a problem with that as long as it's done with with an understanding of where the end is in sight. I don't really see a problem with that. One of the things we've tried to do and I really believe in is we can't really say no to a clinician who has an idea and has got a consumerized piece of technology that will deliver a benefit. Unless we have a solution that's an enterprise solution that's at least as good as 
the consumer solution that the clinicians got. Now, one of the caveats to that is around sort of information governance, cybersecurity, a consumerized piece of technology often doesn't have that enterprise cover that's needed. But we've tried really hard to understand what's needed out there and how can we try and connect the two things together more. So you were in the UK, you're an Englishman. Where do you live in the Republic of Ireland? In Dublin. So in the centre of, it feels like the centre to me anyway, I'm sure other people in Ireland might not agree, but Dublin (laughs) is a a digital hub and that's absolutely, it feels like that all the time. It's a very vibrant city and a city that, you know, from a startups and the engagement we get with, with entrepreneurs and new ideas around digital in healthcare, it makes it a very exciting place to be. You know, in 2016, out of the top 10 startups to receive VC investment, six were healthcare technology companies. So the environment in Dublin around digital and the focus on healthcare is quite phenomenal. Yeah, I was actually just going to say the same thing. Ireland is really known for its innovative culture. It's attracted a lot of early stage people, early stage businesses and enterprising young adults who want to create new solutions. And it's done a great job positioning itself, I'd say globally, as a as a place for uh, investment and corporations to, to establish their presence there. And I was wondering how that did lead over into the health and social care space. Can you give any examples of some of the programs that are happening there in, in Dublin or Republic of Ireland as a whole? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's three Irish startups that have moved beyond the startup stage that are doing video consultations that have got amazing traction with what they've been able to do to really compete on a global market. There's an organization we've been working with called TickerFit that allows you to prescribe a fitness program for people who've had surgery um, that monitors that and reports back to clinicians. And then you look at some of the initiatives that in partnership with academics and business we've been able to do in the last 12 months. So we have a project known as a Lighthouse Project that looks at epilepsy. Ireland, through different partnerships, is now sequencing the genome of people with suspected epilepsy, putting that into the electronic health record, and then making that information available to the multidisciplinary team when they're making decisions around what they can and can't do for that patient. And that started in with with success in the latter part of last year and we now start to roll that out so you can see that that digital entrepreneurship and digital acceptance in dublin and in ireland really having an impact at so many different levels whether it's the great new idea or whether it's the the bigger organizations that we're now engaging with we're starting to create a real ecosystem of engagement which is it's just so enthusing to be part of it you left the UK and you took on really what's sort of a dual role in Ireland, if, if that's correct, the CIO of the health service executive, as well as the CEO of a new organization called eHealth Ireland. Yeah, so eHealth Ireland is the vehicle for delivering digital to the health system of Ireland. So the health service executive of which I'm the CIO is the public health system. But eHealth Ireland's role is actually across public, private and voluntary health systems across the country. Excellent. And when did that organization get started? 
literally in the December, I was the first employee. So as I came to Ireland in December of 14, it became an organization around the role coming in. And over the last two and a half years, we started to look at how and what that organization is and how it grows out of some of the roles and functions that are delivered by the HSE. At the moment, eHealth Island is a program of work within the health service executive, but in the future, it could become the digital vehicle for health across the whole of the country. Yeah, I see why Brian put us in touch. So Brian O'Connor, for all the listeners, uh, you can listen to his episode on episode 23. But Brian O'Connor is the chairman of ECH Alliance, and he suggested that Richard and I speak. So Richard, given that you're the first employee of eHealth Ireland, and you've had really a blank slate to try to make this impact, and knowing that ECH Alliance is focusing on the tactics and the delivery and the activities that people need to follow in order to make this new way of working in healthcare a reality, I can see why he wanted us to speak. What sorts of things did you get started doing when you had this brand new role in a blank slate? So from a project point of view, the deliveries, we tried really hard to move as agile as we could towards some of the step changes that we can make. So moving to what we call an individual health identifier, so a unique identifier for patients for the public of Ireland that can be used across all systems is now in place. Electronic referral, so the ability to do digital referral from GP practice into acute hospital is in place. The first large number now of electronic prescriptions have been done in the south of Ireland. We've done the epilepsy project I mentioned, but replacements of a number of big systems and then our first digital hospitals. So Ireland would have had very much a paper-based healthcare system in 2014 even. In December of last year, our first hospital, which is Cork Maternity Hospital, moved from a paper-based hospital to a digital hospital the first week in December. And now the whole hospital runs completely paper-light, has a, has a digital infrastructure across it. And we've followed that up with a, another maternity hospital since and plan to do that into all maternity services. We also have delivered to government the electronic health record business case, which is effectively an ask to deploy um, four pillars of an EHR across the whole of Ireland into community, into acute, into patients' homes, and an integration layer across other systems. So we're starting to, to move forward to a single, what we call a digital fabric for the whole country. So those are great examples, and the digital hospital piece is is very important. I like the term you use there, paper light. When we look at the problems that are really facing healthcare globally as well as locally, a lot of the problems are around you know, access to beds, bricks and mortar, access to staff. What sorts of things are you guys doing to take the care outside of the hospital? So it's great to know that there's less paper being used and more digital platforms internally. But what's actually being done to help the citizens of Ireland receive health care where they are in their local communities and not have to travel to these established facilities? So what we're trying to do at the moment is put together ways that patients can access information. So we have two pieces of work at the moment around portal capability to enable integrated care to be delivered to the patient. And and the first of those examples sticks with the epilepsy area where a patient can now use their patient portal to look at their health record, to look at what the MDT is suggesting they do, but also for them to record the frequency and severity of, of a seizure that they may have. So that then becomes part of the electronic health record and part of the information about their care needs, which really drives a quicker view of that information. Later this year, a similar type of portal will go live into maternity services. So that puts the 
patients' information in their own hands as to where they're going. And then there are a number of other initiatives across the country. You know, even simply having the IHI means that patients are now uniquely identifiable in the healthcare system, which means that we can now start to access things like capturing consent for clinical research. We can start to look at a digital organ donor register. There's a huge amount of effort being put into making it possible for patients to own their own information. And when own, I don't mean the legal sense of own, but own as in being able to view, see, and understand the information that's held about them in the healthcare system is really important. So you use the acronym IHI, that's the Individual Health Identifier, is that right? Yeah, it is, sorry. So when did, no, it's okay. So when did that get approved? When did that sort of get implemented? So it was approved in the summer of 14. It was created and built over last year. It was able to go live in September and will be put into GP practices and electronic referrals in May of this year. Can you explain why that's a big deal and and how that then will benefit an individual? And obviously, Ireland is not one of the, the world's largest countries. So how does it benefit the citizens of Ireland as they then travel to other parts of the EU or around the world? It's a really good question because trying to get an understanding of what digital identity means as a benefit to a patient is quite complex. So I guess our minister uses a phrase around the, the you know, would you work or be part of any other system where you couldn't be uniquely and securely identified? It, it makes sure that when a clinician is digitally talking about you, the patient, no matter who sees that information, it references back to you. We consider the IHI to be a patient safety initiative first and foremost. It, it guarantees identity of patients in different systems. It allows us to move digital information around the system securely, safely, and audited so that we can actually see who has looked at the information. If you think about paper records, that's virtually impossible. You mentioned there patients moving around the EU in different jurisdictions. There's two really cool parts to the IHI that make a difference there. The first is that the IHI is the same number, string, and type of number as the NHS number, which means that patients in the UK, Northern Ireland in particular, will have a unique number and when a patient goes from the Republic into the North for care or vice versa, that number could continue to be used and that would apply to Wales and, and England as well. Also behind the IHI is a GS1 number, which is unique across the whole of the EU. Ireland is one of the few countries, it's about nine countries that have um, worked together over last year to create a pilot where a summary care record can be shared between those different countries. And some of that is down to the GS1 number behind the IHI being a unique identifier across the whole of the EU, which is a huge, huge benefit for patients moving through the European Union. All right. That's really helpful to, to get an impression of that. That just seems to make sense though, Richard. Why is it an obstacle for other parts of the world to get that sort of system in place? I think moving to health identifiers is an obstacle because of legislation and because of concerns around privacy. We straight away at the beginning made sure that this was a patient safety initiative. We've spent a lot of time engaging patients. We did a privacy impact assessment in the public domain, publishing the content of that at each stage of the drafting. We've made sure that one of the things the IHI does is allow a patient to see who has viewed their clinical information. We've put the audit in the hands of the patient, which is to some degree taken away those privacy concerns. We've also made, made sure that the IHI is about the delivery of healthcare. Now that includes public and private healthcare, but it is only for the use in healthcare, not for insurance companies, not for anybody else to actually be using. And that again makes it quite unique in that 
its position statement in healthcare is about improving healthcare, not about gathering public sector additional information. Interesting. So people outside of the healthcare space are not allowed to ask for that? I mean, for private insurance, for example, or employers or anything else? No, it's not. It's not for use in anything other than de- the delivery of healthcare in the public private healthcare system. So that's guaranteed its sort of stability from a, a people's view of the privacy impact of an IHI. We'll get right back to the interview, but first I wanted to tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. I know you love audio, so I partnered up with Audible to get you started with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Audible has audio recordings of over 180,000 books so that you and I can enjoy them when we're on the go. And let me tell you, this isn't a half-stocked catalog of classic literature. This is the latest and greatest collection of books from the leading minds of today. I'm talking about the books that are bestsellers. I'm talking about the books that our guests recommend. For example, you can listen to Sapiens and Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari that Liz Parrish recommended in episode 30. You can listen to Zero to One by Peter Thiel that Michelle Longmire recommended in episode 28. Or maybe you want to tune into The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz that Yuval Moore recommended in episode 27. Just think, with Audible, you don't have to kick yourself anymore for not finding time to read or feel badly because you keep falling asleep when you're trying to read before bed. Maybe that's just me. With Audible, you can listen while you're working out, traveling, cooking, almost anything you do, Audible can do it with you. So don't wait. Check out our guest recommendations and then give Audible a try for free. Sign up today at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Now let's jump back to the conversation. What else is going on in Ireland that you, that you want to talk to the listeners about? I guess, you know, we've covered off the Epilepsy Lighthouse Project. There's two other big areas at the moment around haemophilia and bipolar disorder, which are two other of the Lighthouse Projects. In haemophilia, we've created effectively a supply chain management solution that tracks treatment right through to the patient's fridge, allows them to scan where the treatment's been used, allows them to communicate securely with their clinician. In bipolar disorder, we're working towards building a a small piece of AI, a chatbot that can be put onto bipolar patient's telephone and be able to make sure that you know, as different things are happening to a patient who's consented, the, the chatbot can text them and say, are you sure you want to do X, Y, or Z? Do you want me to speak to your friend, your carer? Should you do different things to try and stop episodes around bipolar happening? We've concentrated a lot on the innovation space to try and make sure that we support those new startups, those organizations that are coming through with new ideas. And that ranges from the video consults that's happening with GP practice through to so many different ideas. We were working with a company last year called Freefeet, who have come up with a, a small device that you attach to a shoe of a Parkinson's sufferer. The device casts a laser shadow ahead of the feet of the person who has gait freezing through Parkinson's and allows them to walk again and move forward. Last year in November, we had a innovation week, which was a, a, a six-day event, a public-facing event, a free event, where we showcased a lot of this with the public. We had over three and a half thousand people through the door and 250 kids from different schools were just putting our final planning together to do that again in November of this year. So we have so many different areas that we're trying to move forward at the same time. It makes it very varied and very exciting, that's for sure. I've seen some of those solutions that you just mentioned there. I want to talk about the bipolar uh, program that you have. You said you said it's a bipolar lighthouse project. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that sounds like a great solution. Uh, how does that exactly work in terms of the chatbot? What is it actually sensing and how is it triggering the interaction with the user? 
Okay, so from a hackathon, which was part of in the Innovation Week that I just mentioned last year, patients, IT people, academics, patient groups, and clinicians came together. What they said they wanted wasn't a, a mood diary or a way to record information, but they wanted somebody to be on the other end of that diary, prompting answers to questions. So it does a number of things. With consent of the person who's put it on there, it looks at patterns, it looks at social media behavior, it looks at places that you go and visit a lot or you don't go and visit normally. And the chatbot uses the small piece of AI in there to actually suggest, well, you don't normally do this and when you do, it increases the likelihood of an episode relating to bipolar. So should you really do it? Now, this came from a patient who in particular said that when he was heading towards a, a, an episode of mania, he would often go and spend more money than he should. Dublin doesn't have lots and lots of shops, and its fanciest shop is one called Brown Thomas. So this chap suggested that if he went to Brown Thomas more than three times in a week, he would want the chatbot to just alert him to the fact, you're spending more money than you normally would. Are you sure you're okay? Do you want to talk to the friend that you've defined beforehand about possibly the fact you may be heading towards a mania period, which is... Is a bit tongue-in-cheeky in how he did it, but actually really brought home the fact that really simple behaviors, and let's face it, technology that's already on board from a consumerized phone point of view, could really, really change the way people consider how to avoid a mental health episode. So it's a really, really cool way of being able to do it. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great solution. As you know, Prince Harry was just in the news recently. He was on a podcast talking about some of the mental health challenges that he faced dealing with the death of his mother. This podcast, Digital Health Today, released a podcast with Arshia Vahabzadeh of Harvard talking about mental health and all the different technologies that can be applied for. The chatbot is a great solution. Uh, do you see more applications or more technologies coming out to, to address mental health? I think one of our first things in mental health is to actually create a island-wide electronic healthcare record that can be shared, that patients can access and patients can add to. That's our sort of bedrock foundational element for mental health is how do we actually start sharing information and doing that. I think one of the things we saw in Innovation Week and in some of the startups that the application of new technologies, people really are considering mental health as an area that can bring a, a huge amount of benefit, particularly when we consider that the different abilities that are there for how technology can be applied, mobile and being able to you know, communicate directly and securely with a clinician, an advisor, be it via video or, or simply via text, is a, makes a huge difference to a patient going through issues related to mental health. And I think you know, the technology is so obviously there to be able to enable us to do that. Now, Richard, you are one person. Clearly, there are hundreds and thousands of other people involved in developing and delivering the sorts of projects and products we've discussed. What was done to engage others in this journey, as you put it, to transform the digital fabric of Ireland? We have moved in two and a half years from a team that was dispersed throughout Ireland and delivered locally to a national function that delivers technology to the whole of the health system. We created a chief clinical information officer role and through working with clinicians, have managed to recruit 300 clinicians across Ireland into what we call a Chief Clinical Information Officers Council. So that, that idea of making things clinically led from a digital point of view is perhaps, I consider anyway, one of our biggest successes, where others haven't been able to get that clinical engagement. We've been able to really do that and have some immediate success with having clinicians engaged and leading projects. When we look at the maternity and newborn system, the Cork system I spoke about earlier, that was completely led by clinicians. They've spent two years taking an American EHR and making it Irish. 
and then they've spent three to six months getting it ready for deployment, doing the training, and then making sure that on day one that system went live well and carefully and successfully. So that's a great point. Clinical leadership, clinical champions are so key. And I know I work with lots of organizations, both in the U.S. and here in Europe, that are, are focused on getting those clinicians involved. And it's not just doctors, obviously. It's it's, no, not it's across the entire spectrum of healthcare professional. And obviously, you know, I go to some of these conferences and they talk about the doctors being used. You know, this is going to make it easier for doctors. This is going to be this is going to be used by doctors. And really, it's around a lot of other health professionals, a lot of them nurses, and and other roles that will be able to utilize that more effectively with patients and they're really at that uh, leading interface uh, yeah, in terms of contact good. with the patient. So, but how do you go about that practically, Richard? It's great to say that. Everybody's going to say that. We need to have clinical leaders and clinical involvement and clinical champions. What are you doing to make that a reality? So two and a half years ago, we recruited a physiotherapist to create the role of the chief clinical information officer. She came in, in on board. She took a seat on the senior management team of eHealth Island. She drove forward the engagement process of, of how and who should be part of that group. She created the council, the terms reference around that, and how we engage other staff in there. She moved on to a different role and handed the reins to a radiographer who has maintained that role within the eHealth Island SMT. I think what's happened there is clinicians have seen that we are really listening to the voice of other clinicians and have got engaged because of that. When we bring the whole team together, which we do twice a year, the chief clinical information officers are also present in the room. They feel part of the digital change that we're making. And I think we've taken it one step further. They don't just feel part of it anymore. They actually feel like it is their digital change program, um, which is where the power to them has come, I think. I speak to so many clinicians around the world that, that feel disempowered by the systems in which they're working and feel like they don't have the power to change. I go to conferences and there are, uh, there's sometimes just a smattering of doctors in the room. There's a lot of technologists or investors or other professionals, and, and they feel like they can't really get involved and help make a change. So so sounds like you've got some programs and some things that you're doing there in Ireland that uh, a lot of other people could learn from. I think one of the things I've said is, should I move on to a different role at any point in the future, I'd love to see the CIO of the HSC be a clinician at some point. And I think that's something that I still believe in. I know Keith McNeil in the NHS and Matthew Swindells have said similar things that actually to really truly demonstrate to clinicians that we want to empower and give leadership, we perhaps need to look at the role of the CIO in health systems and understand whether it should actually move to be a clinician. I think that would be particularly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I think the people who can straddle both sides and, and understand what it's like to deliver that healthcare and have that patient interaction and then also can, can understand the technologies and the processes behind it, it's key to be able to have that. And you know, it's um, not something that happens accidentally, right? People need to express that interest in, in technology. A lot of clinicians are, are, are seeing other opportunities, and it's a fast pace of change. And technology is coming into so many areas of our lives. Hopefully, it'll it'll attract more people into that profession. I think that's one of the things the guys here have done hugely is to make sure that, it, you know, just by the fact that in two and a half years, they've gone from five CCIOs to 300 shows the attraction of actually getting involved and being part of that group. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Listen, Richard, I've got six questions I'd like to ask all our guests. Do you have a few more minutes for me? Yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, what is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? So recently we've been talking around, there's often people talk around, is Einstein really quoted as saying this, that, or the other? 
we've been using Einstein's phrase, allegedly Einstein's phrase, around if you've got a problem and you've got an hour to fix it, you should spend the first 55 minutes working out what the problem is rather than coming up with the answer. So we've been using that a fair bit recently in different things that we've been looking at. I think ours is less phrases and more stories. I have a reputation from a stage point of view of telling stories to illustrate problems. So we do an awful lot of that side of things, which is it's cool to use the different analogies, different ways of thinking around it, taking things from, you know, American TV soups through to stories about bridges that were built over rivers that didn't exist anymore in Honduras. So there's all sorts of cool stuff that we've been doing in that space. I love being able to use that analogy, that storytelling to get some of our more complex messages across. What advice do you have for others who are working to innovate in healthcare? Advice around innovation is work with your own team as much as outsiders. I really have focused on bringing programs into place that allow clinicians that are working in Ireland or IT professionals that are working within eHealth Ireland to come forward with ideas and allow us and enable us to support them do that. I really believe that not every idea comes from the external startup, new organization, big tech company and that some of the the best ideas we've seen come from clinicians. What book do you recommend for our listeners? It can be anything from business to fiction or anything else. So there's a book called Small Data, which had a big impact on me in November of last year, Uh, Martin Lindstrom. So Mm -hmm. it's an amazing story or set of stories, actually, that really illustrate the point of of not just looking at the big things, but looking at the little things to try and get an answer to to problems. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet Martin towards the end of last year and, and talk about healthcare in particular, and he had some amazing insights into both the things we're doing and looking at different global solutions that are out there. I would highly recommend that book. Yeah, I, I've met Martin as well. I've heard him speak, and I get his newsletter occasionally, and he does have some really interesting approaches, and he's done a, a great amount of research. That's a great recommendation. Thanks for that. What tech do you use that you wouldn't want to live without? It can be software, apps, devices. Uh, I'd have to say my iPod, unfortunately. And I know most people are going to say, well, geez, what are you still using an iPod for? But I I remember once saying to a friend that if the house was burning down, I'd grab my iPod and then I'd give the wife a nudge to get out of the house. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to lose my music collection on my iPod, unfortunately. So you're still on an iPod, not on an iPhone, or you have both? It's just all organized so well. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a labor of love for a decade, so I would hate to not have it organized and there and there, whether you've got Wi-Fi or a connection or not. So I stick to my old iPod, which is near now, unfortunately. If I give you a check for $5 million to invest in health technology today, what would you invest it in? People. Um, We need to invest in our current cohort of people. We have 288 staff in Ireland. That's a really small number of people. I want to be able to give the people that work so passionately in health tech in Ireland the opportunities that they need and deserve. And we need additional resource in Ireland to deliver this stuff. So straight away, without a hesitation, $5 million would be spent on people. Excellent. And lastly, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time here on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? It would be Epilepsy Island. So um, the work that we've done with the service over here around the Lighthouse projects and the work that's there, has it makes a big difference. To see technology genuinely change the lives of people who may have been suffering from an epileptic seizure their entire life for every day. The fact that by doing things like sequencing the genome, changing drugs, understanding the pattern of care can actually fundamentally change somebody's life in a relatively quick period of time is something that we 
it, it does shine a light on what technology can do in healthcare. So Epilepsy Island, it would be. Very good. Well, thank you for that. How can people keep in touch with you and follow your work and, and see what it is you're doing? So people can get in touch via the eHealth Island website. I am a little bit addicted to Twitter, so they can find me on Twitter relatively easily. And if people want to throw advice or get in touch generally, then LinkedIn's there and works really well for us. All right. You've got your, your Twitter feed. is Richard Atron with uh, one for the, the eye. You've also got a, a blog or a website, richardcorporage.com. We put quite a lot of stuff on the blog site. We have guest writers. We do a fair amount of writing onto that. It's quite a, a well-populated stuff. It's all nearly all about health tech and being a CIO. Excellent. Well, Richard, thanks a lot for joining me on the program and look forward to keeping track of and seeing what you're doing there in Ireland to push things forward. Thanks ever so much, Dan. See you soon. There you have it. That was Richard Corbridge of the Health Service Executive and eHealth Ireland. Get all the show notes and links to everything we discussed by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 32. While you're there, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast, and I'd love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes as well. Many thanks to our sponsor, Audible. Don't forget to get your free trial and your free download by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash free. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at dhealthtoday. Thanks again for tuning in and being a part of the digital health community. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.